0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest dharma series.
1: Thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Todd Stitt. I'm a volunteer here at Common Ground. And I'd like to welcome Henry Evans. As many of you know, Henry's a psychiatrist. And he's written a book called Chemistry of Joy, over- overcoming Depression through Western Science and Eastern Wisdom, and based on this book, he's developed a, a resilience training program at uh, Penny Georgia Institute of Health and Healing at Abbott Northwestern Hospital, and the program uses the resilience program uses the book and goes into more in-depth teaching of meditation, nutrition, and exercise and other healing tools. Um, Besides that book, Henry's working on another one that he expects will be available next fall and tentatively it's titled Chemistry of Calm and will be about anxiety working with anxiety. So welcome Henry. Thanks for coming.
0: Well thank you for coming out on one of our lovely fall evenings. So I uh, I wanna Talk a little bit about, um, about how we can deal with some of the uh, challenges that we face in our world, um, both the in- internal challenges as well as external, the private, as well as the kind of the broader challenges that we're all very well aware of. Um, the, t- the title of this talk is uh, All Will Be Well. Cultivating calm in times of chaos. The the title really came from a, a reading I'd done long long ago um, by a, a spiritual writer whose name is Anthony de Mello. Some of you're probably familiar with him. He's he died uh, some years ago. but He was a I believe he was a um, a Catholic uh, monk. And he did a series of workshops and writings about awareness. And he wrote a a book called Awareness: The Perils and Opportunities of Reality. This is his opening paragraph. I remembered reading it, and this is where the, the title came from. I want to read that paragraph to you now. Spirituality means waking up. Most people even though they don't know it, are asleep. They're born asleep. They live asleep. They marry in their sleep. They breed children in their sleep. They die in their sleep without ever waking up. They never understand the loveliness and the beauty of this thing that we call human existence. You know, all mystics, Catholic, Christian, non-Christian, no matter what their theology, no matter what their religion, are unanimous on one thing, that all is well. All is well. Though everything is a mess, all is well strange paradox, to be sure. But tragically, most people never get to see that all is well because they are asleep. They are having a nightmare. So I read this some years ago. And the thing that really jumped out to me uh, in this paragraph and really in this whole book with that one line all is well. he really emphasized it. you know he even says that it's the one thing that all these different religions can agree upon. And I think it uh, jumped out of me because it was something I needed to hear. I needed that sort of um, reassurance and perhaps because I had like most people he says, I had been asleep most of my life. Still am a lot of the time. But but he is talking about something that sounds like um, a different level of reality than what most of us are aware of, most of us experience from day to day. It's hard to believe almost that that that's true, that, that all is well when there's so much that seems to be otherwise. So what is the nightmare? He talks about um, most people being asleep and living a a nightmare. What is the nightmare that he's referring to? There's another quote from a a different one of his works where he, I think he's talking about this. He says, we live in a flash of light. Evening comes, and it is night forever. It's only a flash, and we waste it. We waste it with our anxiety, our worries, our concerns, our burdens. Our life is only a flash. Mary Oliver talks about this, the poet Mary Oliver. And she, she asks a question in one of her poems, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Nobody wants to waste it with anxiety, worries, burdens, concerns. We don't want to, and yet you know, we often do. So how how do we wake up? How do we? How can we protect the loveliness of life, the beauty of it? The, Recognize the preciousness of it. How can we live with that belief that, he says, all the mystics know that all is well, somehow, underneath the surface of all this, that all is, is well? So I, I want to, by the way, I don't really know the answer to those <laughs> things. <laughs> I should probably say that right up front. But um, but there are, there are paths that I think um, give us an idea of how to live in that way how to uh, how to get there and I want to talk about uh, about this in a way that I think recognizes the complexity of who we are as human beings because I don't think this is simple at all and yet in a way it probably is very simple and and so I want to do this by talking a little bit about um, the, the roots of resilience what I consider to be the roots of resilience and this is a, a model that um, I developed with some teaching colleagues including uh, Susan Mercury who's here tonight Susan and Sandra Cassie who's who also teaches with me in this uh, resilience training program but it, it is a way of, of, uh, of thinking about you know really all of who we are as human beings. as Todd mentioned it really it's kind of a way it's something that we drew out of that first book that I wrote the chemistry of joy but but it's it's more than, more than that or it's evolved I think beyond beyond that. So I I'm going to mention all all of the those roots, all seven of them. I'm really just going to talk about a couple of them tonight uh, at least in any kind of Depth, but um, but we really do need to, to honor all of ourselves. And if we forget one part, if we you know let's say leave the body alone and focus just on mind or meditation, um, might work for some of us if our bodies are really pretty healthy and balanced. But for a lot of us, it's not it's not going to work very well. And vice versa. So those um, so seven. There, there are three ways of, of, uh, that I think about needing to attend to the body. One is to, to balance the, our chemistry or physiology, if you will, particularly that of the brain, especially if we're dealing with something like anxiety or stress. The second is to really manage our energy well, to keep our bodies functioning. Properly, continuing to be able to, you know, to build and provide us with the energy we need to do all these other things. We are built for action, and we have to have the energy and the focus to really be able to do that. And then um, the third is to honor the, the rhythms of nature, the cycles that our, our bodies need, that, that we're really designed for. Um, to align ourselves with with our nature, which is to, for example, to follow activity with rest or to um, to follow daytime with sleep and follow the rhythm of the seasons and so forth. Those are all ways of attending to the the physical side of ourselves. And then um, the mind, the mental or emotional part of ourselves, um, we attend to by doing something like we just did, calming, learning to, to calm the mind, work with the thoughts in a healthy way, and then also to work with the emotions, to turn our attention toward uh, the emotions in a way that gives us some freedom from them, so that we're not just controlled or our lives aren't dominated entirely by by our unpleasant, challenging, difficult emotions. And then the, the third, Part of ourselves um, to attend to is the spirit, the soul, if you will, which um, really involves uh, working with the heart, opening ourselves, opening ourselves both to um, how we hold and attend to ourself and also um, opening ourselves to others and, and then creating deep or meaningful relationships and, and other deep connections, deep connections with our, ourselves, our inner self. So I want to um, frame this by telling you a, a story. It's a true story of someone who uh, came to see me about probably about a year, year and a half ago now. And this was a, a woman who was just uh, really overcome with anxiety. She was having panic attacks. She was anxious all the time, and she wasn't sleeping. And she she came in and kind of announced that she was having uh, round two of PTSD. Those were her words, and having round two of PTSD. And then she went on to tell her story that for the last seven months, she just hadn't been able to sleep more than three or four hours a night because she was so caught by anxiety. It's pretty understandable why, how it happened. She was diagnosed with cancer. Seven months earlier, um, it happened to be a very, very treatable cancer. Her prognosis was actually after treatment was very good. Um, presumably, she was cured of it. But hearing that you have a diagnosis of cancer, you, you should be scared. We all would be. Totally normal response, as, as far as that goes. But. That normal response, as happens so often to probably all of us from time to time, that normal response went way too far, and um, she couldn't shut it off again. She started as I mentioned not sleeping, and that was really her big concern that she she uh, she just couldn't get any rest, she could not shut her mind down, um, and we all know what that's like too, but most of us. Probably don't know what that's like for seven months straight. I'm sure it was horrible. And she had tried everything. This was probably the um, the thing that was was so frustrating to her is that she had tried everything she could think of. She had gone, you know, virtually everywhere she could think of or could afford to do. She'd gone to a sleep clinic, n- numerous doctors. She tried all kinds of medications. She'd gone to a sleep sleep center, she'd been to the mail clinic, you know, she really did everything she could think of and she tried medications for sleep that normally would work pretty well and they just were not were not helping her. So part of her story then is that she'd had a very similar experience nine years earlier, um, when she witnessed a, a really horrifying car accident. She saw, you know, she was there and, and saw it happen. And, and people were killed or severely injured in it. She herself wasn't hurt, but it was traumatic nonetheless. And after that, she had about six months of very similar stuff. She couldn't sleep. and But, but at that time, you know, nine years earlier, um, the sleeping medications that they finally gave her, they worked. She was able to get sleeping again and get back on track. So she was um, frightened. And she was um, kind of wondering if this was ever going to get better. She was beginning to really lose hope that it would. That's a very difficult place to be. I uh, had the sense in speaking with her that what she most needed from me at that moment was hope. She needed some reassurance that, in fact, this is temporary. This can improve. This can get better." And that's something um, I was able to very honestly give her because I believed it. I knew that um, you know, in spite of all the efforts, the things she'd, made, she'd tried and hadn't worked, I, mean, I, I knew that this was not a permanent state, even though she believed it to be so. And I also um, knew that this stress response, this fear reaction that she had, um, could be turned off again. It's not so easy to do, but it could be turned off again. For some reason, it wasn't. It wasn't being turned back down. The dials on that stress hormones were were not. She lost control of them. And um, it's useful, I think, to consider why that happens. What are some of the reasons why A stressful event, sometimes for some people, triggers something that goes on and on and doesn't shut off again. And I think that, using her as kind of as as an example for that, I think there's a few really common reasons for why that happens that I just want to allude to. One thing is that. when the, when the stress response happens, the way we are built as uh, mammals, if you will, um, it's very, very normal to have this kind of strong fear or stress reaction. It's a very strong survival technique. For survival, you know, in terms of thinking about how we're built physically and, and how our brains are built, the number one issue really is survival in all kinds of different ways. And so if we are threatened by something, if we feel that something dangerous or threatening has entered our our field, we're going to have that kind of um, immediate, very strong release of stress hormones and strong reaction. That part of it is is completely normal. Adrenaline goes up, and it's very fast-acting, and it really prepares us to do the the thing stress is meant to do, which is to fight or to run, um, or if everything else fails, to freeze. But it's meant to be just very momentary, just a few minutes at most. Um, If it goes on much longer than that, it really becomes destructive, as it had with her. The next part of that response is that the stress hormone cortisol goes up. It's slower than adrenaline, but it still rises and it's meant to it's actually meant to help the body restore, recover from stress. So that after fighting or running or what have you, you need to replenish your energy. So you need to eat more. Um, your body needs to kind of shut down and rest. You need to integrate memories of what happened, so if it ever happens again, You'll know about it. You can do something. Um, and it also changes the immune system so that um, you can, the body can direct its, its uh, energy toward healing in case the body's been injured and whatever just happened. So those are really are the three core things of cortisol. But it's supposed to last just a few minutes to a few hours and then go back down. So the, the problem in um, the stress response for most of us these days is that it doesn't go back down. It it goes up as it's supposed to, just as it did for her. And it would have been totally normal if she had all those feelings, but if they had come back down within a few hours or maybe a a few days. When it doesn't happen, it becomes sort of a strange um, self-fulfilling cycle. The, The very hormones that are raised in this case kind of keep themselves alive. They keep this whole process going uh, by changing those very things that I mentioned. So you're supposed to eat more to recover from this event. And cortisol does that, but it just keeps you eating and particularly craving high-sugar, you know, high-carbohydrate foods so you gain weight. That's hard on the brain. The high, those, those high sugars are hard on the brain. But it also creates weight gain in a very particular way. It's right in the middle of the body. Just in the last few years, um, we we, we realized that that abdominal body fat functions as another endocrine gland. It produces hormones, uh, the very hormones that started the problem in the first place. So it just compounds the problem. people who have this insulin uh, sensitivity or sugar sensitivity and um, and start gaining weight and gain it in the middle, it it becomes harder and harder to turn the process off. The second thing that that happens is that um, the body remains on high alert, and it doesn't really shut itself down so that you never can go into a state of real rest or relaxation. That happened with her. And that was really, the, I think, the biggest problem for her. The reason why um, this cycle had gone on so long, I was quite sure, was because she couldn't sleep. Try it for a while. Try sleeping three or four hours a night for a week, two weeks, or more. Um, You you can't feel good. Nobody can feel good um, if if you can't sleep. And it is one of the most stressful things for your body, not being able to sleep. So her, you're um, going that long with this terrible insomnia. It just perpetuated it, the very problem that started it. So that's where we started. That's what we focused on. Was just trying to get her to sleep. Started her on uh, four or five different supplements that were meant to try to calm all this brain activity and try to help her sleep. And I was confident and shared that confidence with her that, that this should turn around quickly if she starts sleeping, which is exactly what happened. Um, she didn't completely re- re- return to normal in a few days, but her sleep improved so much that she began feeling like this was something she could she could manage, she could handle. She started to feel like she had more Clarity of mind. She, her wits were about her again. She felt like this was um, this is doable. This is survivable, manageable. Um, then the issue for her became: What do I do to prevent this from happening again? How can I learn new skills, practice, change something about myself so that this doesn't keep happening over and over again? Recovery. Of restoration is 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 a first essential step. If that doesn't happen, all these other practices don't have a lot of value. They they just don't work very well. You can't really meditate like we just did if you're in a state of panic, anxiety. You could try and maybe it would help, but it would be very very difficult. And it, and it wouldn't. I wouldn't expect that that would turn it around or stop the panic. But if if the all those stress responses begin to shut down, then it gives the, the person a chance to do some other practices that might really help long term. I want to mention, just just in passing, the third thing that um, what the stress response really demands of us. And that is movement of some sort. If you think about it, the whole act of um, Boosting these adrenaline and other, other hormones, it, it is preparing you for movement, for vigorous movement. It's preparing you to either fight or to run, and it's doing it very, very efficiently, very effectively. If we don't do that, then there's all this energy built up, and all these these hormones that have really kind of set us on edge. Um, they don't have anywhere to go. They don't get dissipated. The tension, the energy doesn't get uh, out of the body if we don't move in some way. And so even though most of our stresses are not actually the kind that require us to fight or to run, we would do well to do that. Maybe maybe, maybe choose running rather than fighting. <laughs> but, um, But moving the body in a vigorous, Physical way, it, it'll you know get rid of that tension that has been, been built up for that very purpose. So those three things are really basic core um, aspects of, of self care um, that need to be done in order to shut this this response down and help the brain really recover from it. But there, then there is the the mind and um, and in her case, again, this is really what set this whole thing in motion. And I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room knows more or less what, what that is like. If something happens that is challenging in some way, the mind latches onto it, and it takes off. Our, our bodies are designed extremely well to handle um, real threats, really um, extreme physical threats to our well-being. We're really, really good at doing that. We're not so well designed to respond to these perceptions or mental threats or the fear that something is going to happen in the future, and then continuing to fear that thing over and over and over again. So she had a severe diagnosis. frightening diagnosis, a uh, kind of experience that should trigger this response. But the problem really got set in motion when she started thinking about it. It's pretty hard not to do that, I, I know. But that's the kind of thing that we can, we can practice. The, uh, some of you are familiar with uh, the story, the Buddhist story, of uh, the, the second arrow, the warrior and the second arrow. It's a way of describing what we do to ourselves with our, our mind and our thoughts that, that really create or exacerbate the, the problem. So the, the, the story briefly goes like this, that the um, if you imagine a warrior in battle back when they used bows and arrows, and uh, he gets shot, He'll be shot in the chest with an arrow. Not fatal, but a bad wound. And um, if that were the end of it, it might, it might uh, be okay, might survive, might recover from it. But if that soldier took another, a second arrow out of his own, um, whatever that arrow holder is called, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, and took it and stuck it in himself, that is kind of what we do with our thoughts, with our thinking mind. So in her case, for example, the first arrow would be getting the diagnosis of cancer. Nothing you can do about that. It just happens. If you're out there in the the course of living your life, things like that are going to happen. All you can do is respond to that. But if you take another arrow out of your quiver and hit yourself with it, that's that's like what we do with our thoughts about it it's not it's not a wise way to live so um, it's very hard for us not to do that because we've been practicing doing that very sort of thing for most of our lives it's it's been rehearsed over and over and over again so if you were to pay attention to in the way that we just did a little bit earlier if you were to pay attention to What goes on in your mind over the course of your day, for example, you might be shocked to find out how many thoughts you have um, that you hold about yourself in some sort of harmful way. Some way of of, uh, thinking poorly of yourself, um, beating up on yourself, thinking that you're not enough, uh, thinking that. you're not as good as the person, this other person in your life that you compare yourself to. We do this constantly, and it creates a state of perpetual stress that we just never really, really get a chance to recover from. Her case was pretty extreme. A lot of us maybe don't have quite that extreme of an example, but but, it's these, but things happen in our lives that set this in motion, and then we start thinking about it. So how do we release ourselves from that? How do we learn not to do that to ourselves? It really is um, as simple as practicing in a way like we just did earlier tonight, where you pay attention to a thought as it arises. And you practice enough so that you really get a chance to identify with that observing self, that ability that we all have to um, observe our moment to moment experience without judging it, without getting <coughs> caught up in it in some way. So we, um, we can practice that in the meditation, and probably most of us need to do that in order to get skilled at it. But then we can take it outside of the half hour 20-minute meditation practice, and you can do it all day long in a, in a certain way. You can notice when you are caught up in a thought, or when you're having a harmful thought, or if your mind is just a jumble and just racing, you know, going from when you're really stressed and just can't slow it down or shut it down. You can notice that. What good does that do? the very act of noticing it, bringing awareness to it, changes it. It changes it. It doesn't free you automatically, but it gives you a little gap, a little bit of a space, so that you can choose to do something a little different than just continuing to have the same thought over and over again. Um, I think of... um, the thoughts that we practice over and over again is being kind of like a, when a, a radio DJ is trying to create a hit song, and they play it on the air over and over again over the course of the day. And if you hear it enough, you get really familiar with it, and you know you begin to like it, kind of, or at least you you begin to um, kind of own it, take ownership of it. We do that with, a, with with certain of these harmful thoughts. We're literally creating connections, neural connections, from one nerve cell to another that with practice, with a little bit of rehearsal, it, um, it creates a new network, a new pathway. It's kind of like um, if you imagine walking on the same path every day or multiple times a day, over time you create a little bit of a a rut in that path. Um, It starts to deepen. It gets a little wider. It gets easier and easier to travel. That's kind of what happens when we create certain new pathways with our our brain, with, with the thoughts that we carry. So it is also possible to undo those connections by noticing and releasing the thoughts, not entertaining or perpetuating them. And it's also very, very possible to create new ones, really different ones, to hold ourselves in a different way than we we have been. We first have to notice. We have to be aware of what it is that we're doing and when we're doing it. And then we have the option, at least, of doing something different.
1: I want to read to
0: you um, something that was... uh, it was in the paper about six months ago, I think, that illustrates how this is not limited to the, our, just our individual personal selves. This is uh, from a talk that Larry Summers gave. Uh, Larry Summers is the White House uh, budget director, I believe. And he was giving this talk about um, what was happening in the world economy at the time. See if I can find the date if this was that was it was it was March. March thirteenth of of this year. And you know, this was a time which I mean we probably all remember, right? That uh, you know there was still a fear that the economy was might completely collapse, might go into some kind of uh, territory that we've never experienced before. And the whole country really was kind of was gripped with, with fear. It hasn't altogether gone away. But this is what he said. Greed gives way to fear, and this fear begets fear. This is the paradox at the heart of the financial crisis. In the past few years, we've seen too much greed and too little fear. Too much spending and not enough saving. Too much borrowing and not enough worrying. Today, however, our problem is exactly the opposite. It is this transition from an excess of greed to an excess of fear that President Roosevelt had in mind when he famously observed that the only thing we had to fear was fear itself. It is this transition that has happened in the United States today. So he says that there wasn't enough worrying. He's really saying that in some ways, you know, this is before the crisis. There wasn't we weren't worrying enough about saving and so forth. Um, and he's really saying that there is value in some way to worrying. I actually think that's true. I think a little bit of worry, especially if we do it. On purpose, you know. It's, you might call it planning, or <laughs> or preparing, or um, a little bit of. But a little bit of worry is, is a good thing. It's not a bad. And a little and stress is also not a bad thing. It's a good thing to be stressed from time to time. But um, fear, fear begets fear. It creates more of itself perpetuates the cycle. And when it is so widespread as it was at that time in our history, it can bring a, a whole economy to its needs. Really, a lot of what created that problem was emotional. It was what was going on in our minds. It was what was going on in our, in our emotions. You know, most of us as individuals didn't have a lot of control over that but you multiply that kind of fear by you know millions of times and people are in power people who have money who have a lot of access to that and it can uh, it can ruin a- entire nations it can also bring nations to war with one another as we have seen so why do we do this why would we why would we keep having these patterns, keep having these thoughts? Pema Chodron uses a phrase, she, she calls this wild mind. Wild mind. She says that we've been, we've been practicing this since we were children. We didn't have this at the beginning of our lives. We, we were, the mind was, was calm. It was in its natural state, but pretty early in our lives. Uh, we started to create this pattern of thinking. And we've been practicing it unconsciously. We've been asleep, as DeMello said, ever since, just doing it over and over and over again. So of course, that's what it's like. But she goes on to say that every one of us, every one of us, has the same mind as those who are enlightened. We have the same mind the same capacity to be calm, to be peaceful, to be loving, to be open. We have that same capacity. We just have to open ourselves to it, to practice it, to rehearse something different. We have to do that with intention. We We can't presume that it's going to happen on its own. It's something that we have to foster. We have to do it on purpose. Meditation is the training ground for that. There probably are other ways that you could do it, but it's the most um, tried and true. It's been around for a long time. People have been um, struggling with the same things we struggle with now for a long time. I think one difference, though, is that um, It's only recently that that we live in a state of stress all the time. That's a recent change. Historically, people would go through periods of strong stress, and then it would subside. And they would rest. We don't really rest anymore. Not in the same way. And we feed ourselves uh, with fearful information. All of the time. So you know, it's no wonder that, really, that that um, that there would be such an interest in awakening now. I mean, even just to have this many people come out on a Saturday night, you know, and to have so many people around the country and around the world really hungry for another way to approach the kind of problems that we're faced with. It just speaks to this. Um, this is not how we're made. This is not how we're built. And and really, none of us want to keep going in the way that we have been going. It's too hard. Sometimes um, people who have struggled with anxiety or depression, um, or really anyone who's been asleep for a long time, has the notion that there's something kind of magical or special about this, or that it's it's just hard to access. Other people might be able to do this, but not, not me. Um, and it's not true. It, it really is not true. Everyone has the same mind as those who are enlightened. Everyone has the capacity to awaken. I want to spend the remaining time talking um, a little bit more about I guess another way that our our thoughts manifest, which is in in what we call emotions, uh, especially the, 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 the fearful or, or negative emotions, those that are unpleasant and that we want to escape. I think, in, in a way, um, those kind of feelings, whether it's fear, sadness, anger, um, insecurity, shame, greed, whatever the unpleasant feeling is, it can be looked upon as a gift, a tool, a reminder that we're not paying attention, that that our awareness has slipped. Because if we were aware, if we were really present, those feelings would rise and fall rather quickly. We wouldn't latch onto them. They wouldn't um, become embodied in us. They would be temporary. When they're not temporary anymore, we know something has gone awry. We know that we've gotten lost in thought. Our awareness has dropped. It's a signal, really, that we're off somehow. So that's really helpful. It's really helpful to know that. I don't know if how many of you um, were noticed when during the meditation, when I uh, made reference to the practice of mindfulness, really being about noticing when you're off and then bringing yourself back. It's not a bad thing to get off. we all do that. Um, we'd like to do it less, I think it, it's Life is a little easier if we do it less. But we all do it. But as soon as we notice, if we're paying attention and we notice that we're off and we have some ability to bring ourselves back, back into being kinder to ourselves, back into the the moment, then um, we're practicing. We're rehearsing something new. We're developing a skill that allows us eventually to move towards freedom from these kind of feelings. uh, Rainier Maria Rilke has a uh, quote in a poem that he wrote um, that I think is just a beautiful way of talking about this. He says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, Just keep going. No feeling is final. No feeling is final. Pretty hard to remember that when you're in a state of panic or a state of depression. But if you can, if you can remember that no feeling is final, it gives you a little opening. It gives you a little bit of a chance to gain some freedom from that feeling, to not be overcome or owned by it. We just talk about impermanence. Would that apply to everything else but not to our emotions? No. Everything is impermanent. No feeling is final. you another story. Once there was a young warrior. Her teacher told her that she had to do battle with fear. She didn't want to do that. It seemed too aggressive. It was scary. It seemed unfriendly. But the teacher said she had to do it and gave her the instructions for the battle. The day arrived. The student warrior stood on one side and fear stood on the other. The warrior was feeling very small and fear was looking big and wrathful. They both had their weapons. The young warrior roused herself and went toward fear, prostrated three times, and asked, may I have permission to go into battle with you? Fear said, Thank you for showing me so much respect that you ask permission. Then the young warrior said, how can I defeat you? Fear replied, my weapons are that I talk fast and that I get very close to your face. Then you get completely unnerved and you do whatever I say. If you don't do what I tell you, I have no power. You can listen to me, and you can have respect for me. You can even be convinced by me. But if you don't do what I say, I have no power. In that way, the student warrior learned how to defeat her fear. story by Pema children and her book, When Things Fall Apart. So I want to um, very briefly talk about a, a, way to, um, a way to think about how to deal with the really strong emotional storms, the kind that that um, this woman in my earlier example had experienced, at least twice. And really all of us will experience this at one time or another. But this isn't the everyday kind of emotion that uh, the kind that can be a signal to us that we're a little bit off our thinking. This is the kind that knocks us off our feet. This is an emotional tsunami. and and we wouldn't really expect ourselves to be able to, to uh, defeat that kind of emotion with um, a simple meditation practice or relaxation skills or exercise or what have you. Um, the best we can do, I think, is to hold ourselves steady, to find a way to hold ourselves steady until it passes, and to know that it will pass. And so the steadiness part, it's very, very helpful to have had some practice at steadying your mind and working with your heart and your opening yourself to your emotions. It's very, very helpful to have done that for a while. Um, without it, it would be pretty hard to, to get through those times without some external help. But and you still might need external help. But if you've done some practicing, if you know how to sit, if you know how to pay attention to your thoughts, if you know how to pay attention to your emotions, then it is possible to use those skills simply to ground yourself in the moment, to hold yourself with an awareness perhaps of your your body, to notice something as simple and concrete as the feeling of how you're sitting, the texture of your clothing, or um, or the sense of constriction that's starting to overtake you. If you can notice those things, you ground yourself in the moment. It gives you a chance to hold yourself steady. And then, if you practiced these things for a bit, you can notice a series of of uh, 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 different parts of the experience, of when, when you're being overcome by a really, really strong emotion. You can apply mindfulness at each of these stages. I'm just going to go briefly, briefly go over those. The very first thing that happens is that there is a surge of emotion. It just starts, and it, you know that it's beginning to overtake you. We all have a little different. Way a different emotion that tends to grab us in this way. For some of us, it's anger. For some of us, it's um, lack of worth or fear, insecurity. But we've all got our own little little flavor of that. But as soon as it begins to really get strong and overtake you, you know you need to start. You need you need to pay attention. You need to really bring your awareness to bear. Um, and the, well, the first thing that's going to happen is that the feeling is going to present itself as, as a, a really strong, unpleasant thing. If you can notice that, if you can just say, this is just fear, this is just unpleasant, and not do anything more, the very, at the very least, you can... You cannot um, add to it, not do any more harm to yourself. The second thing is that thought begins to enter. First the surge of emotion, and then you start thinking. Like in the case of the woman, gripped by fear as soon as she heard the diagnosis of cancer, and then she started thinking, what if this happens or this happens? So the thought begins to enter. And it allows you, again, a a moment of mindfulness, a moment of awareness. If you can learn to not let yourself get caught by that thought, get hooked by it. it, not let it take you down the path that it will inevitably do if you let it, it gives you a potential to step out of that cycle. Third thing is that you get start getting caught up in your story. So first, it's a um, strong emotion. Then it's a you start thinking, but then your storyline kicks in, your own personal story. And in her case, you know it was, well, this happened before. You know this is this is going to be horrible again. And others, for a lot of us, it's some sense of of unworth. Some hard way in which we hold ourselves. But the story, personal story, gets caught up. If you can notice that and direct kindness towards yourself, and, or simply disconnect from the story, recognizing you know, you've heard it a thousand times before, you know where it's going to take you if you keep going with it, if you keep entertaining it. And then the next stage is that we speak or we act. We do something. In this case, it's a mistake to do something. So we say something that makes it worse, or we take some kind of action that makes it worse. We can notice right before we do that at the impulse of saying or doing something, we can step back from it. It gives us a, a, a momentary gap to choose to do that or not. And then finally, if the process has gone on and taken us over, and we spoke, or we acted, and we went too far with it. There is still a chance of going back and working with that whole process, doing it in a meditation, for example, or in a, with journaling, and and um, going over each of those stages. How could I have applied my skill? How could I have been mindful in this moment or in this point of the process? How could I do it? Differently next time. It's like the uh, woman warrior asking fear, "How can how can I defeat you?" You can ask yourself that question after you've been defeated, so that next time you won't be. I'm going to um, close with two poems. The first is uh, written by. Rumi, many of you know. And the second was written by Susan, which is a a variation on the Rumi poem. So I'm just going to read them sequentially and just, just let you listen. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door of your study and begin reading. Take down a dulcimer. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the earth. Today, like every other day, We may wake up empty or frightened. Don't just open the door to your office or open your laptop. This is Susan, not Rumi. Instead, sit down on your cushions. Just sit. Breathe. Come home to your body, your life in whatever disarray you may find it. Settle in. It's your life. It's your unrepeatable day. Go deeper beneath the worry, the agitation over what next and what if. Just sit. Breathe. Touch the stillness at the center. Touch into all you love, and the love that is all, that is you.
1: Thank you, Henry. We do have tea and cookies and treats in the community room. So, and Henry has said he can stay around for a while. So. If Hopefully,
0: you'll be able to chat and uh,
1: ask questions. Thanks. Thank you all for coming.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed,
1: please visit slash donate.